But mercy, being merciful, living into a compassionate heart like Jesus had, that is central to Christianity. It's a, it's a non-negotiable for those of us who are serious about following Jesus. Christians are called to follow Jesus in becoming merciful people who bring healing and restoration to the places of pain in the world, right? The crowds beg to just touch Jesus' cloak and all who touch him were healed. Jesus' mercy leads to healing. The church's mercy is meant to lead to healing. Christians are called to follow Jesus. Christians are called to be merciful people. I imagine, though, if on your way home today you were to stop and ask 10 people to say word association, 10 words you associate with the term Christian, I wonder if you'd hear mercy at all. If I was a betting man, I'd probably say you wouldn't. And that's really a shame because it's a huge kingdom value for Jesus. Jesus assumes and presumes that his followers are going to be enacting and living out of his mercy all through the Gospels. Timothy Keller writes these words. He says, Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can actually, it can actually be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional or additional to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of a true faith. Where does that conviction from Timothy Keller come from? What comes from passages where Jesus himself says, like in Luke 6, be merciful just as your father is merciful. That's one of those short framing worldview statements. I want you, not just those who are temperamentally predisposed to having a tender heart, if you're my follower... You are to be merciful, just as your Father has been merciful to you. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. To a group of religious leaders that are having a really hard time with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Like, we're all sinners, but these are like, again, capital S sinners. They're like the really bad ones. Tax collectors like Matthew, and, and it just gets in their craw that this respected rabbi would even darken a, a home of someone like that. Jesus says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Jesus is like, you are so particularly religious. That when, even when it comes to tithing, giving your a tenth of your income, that's not enough for you. You're looking at all the little herbs and making sure even a tenth of your dill plants gets tithed. And he says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Other translations will say the weightier matters of the law. Tithing's a good thing. Benevolence to and for the people of God is absolutely a good, good thing. Jesus says, you should have practiced the latter. You should have kept tithing without neglecting the former. But Jesus does say that there are weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. We should be thinking about a word like mercy when we read statements by Jesus in John 13, like, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Because by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, in a world that has very confusing ideas of what love is, certainly the entire scripture, the gospels particularly, the life and teaching of Jesus points us towards that love is going to look merciful much of the time. Mercy is going to be 
a massive characteristic of what it looks like for us as Christians to love each other. In the passage before us today, people recognized Jesus and they flocked to him, not just because they wanted to get healed, but because, through Je- because though Jesus held the power to withhold the healing, he didn't have to heal them. They had heard that Jesus healed all who came to him. So they were anticipating him being merciful. He was gracious. He was compassionate. And that's how we're to grow, as well as Christians. God intends to form us, you and I, as disciples of his, in such a way that all the people who know us, over time, come to associate merciful and compassionate with who we are. Hey, neighbor of Jeff, give me ten words you associate with Jeff. Merciful and compassionate should get in that top ten. So we are called to be merciful. But let's talk about the charisma of mercy. Notice in verse 30, 55, it says, These people ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats wherever they heard he was. People just moved heaven and earth to get to Jesus, to get their sick friends to Jesus. What has Jesus been doing in Mark's gospel thus far that causes people to desperately seek him out? Well, he's been doing two things. He's been showing the kingdom through healings and through miracles, and he's been telling the kingdom through preaching. He's been showing and telling what the kingdom of God looks like. God rule, God's rule and reign is being established in and through him. Every kingdom has a king. He's not so subtly beginning to allude to the fact that he is the king of this new kingdom. And God is, in a new and powerful way, beginning to set the world right, beginning to redeem and restore what has been lost to him, beginning with broken humanity. He's been bringing the mercy and grace to God to bear on every dimension of personhood, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's been healing the the physical blind and the spiritually blind. He's been healing the physical lepers and the relational lepers. He's been healing the outcasts, the spiritual outcasts, and the social outcasts. And through his mercy, he's been addressing the felt needs through concrete action. He hasn't been ignoring it. He hasn't saying, oh, these needs don't matter. We just need to talk about spiritual things. For Jesus, the physical and what we might think of as the immaterial, the spiritual, they overlap and interlock in very intimate and powerful ways. He's bringing, through his actions, he's making it very clear. God doesn't just care about your soul. God cares about you, the totality of your personhood. And the mercy and grace of God is for the totality of your personhood. And if you read Mark's gospel carefully, while Jesus sees his primary mission as proclaiming the gospel, the vast majority aren't, don't seek Jesus out because of his teaching. They seek him out because of the healings. Now, we can see that in a condemnatory way, and the gospel often presents it as they're basically just coming because they knew they could get healed. But it also shows us something important, and that is the charisma of ministry. One of the ways you can define charisma is a compelling attractiveness. And there are few things in this world that have more compelling attractiveness than a person who displays tremendous mercy and grace. It's so rare in today's world to come across someone who's genuinely merciful that when you encounter it, you do want more. You're drawn to it. They're the kind of person you want to be around more and more of. You find yourself just wanting to make up excuses to 
just be in their presence and to, and to learn from them. And you don't even really care what you're talking about. I've had this experience with, with many, many people in my life. There's just a, it's a beautiful presence and there's a grace there and it's hard to put into words, but it is so attractive. You're drawn to it. I just wanted to check, but I did confirm there are no lineups out there of people to get in here. There's no, just, there's not. Uh, No one is begging to get in here. There's lots of empty seats. Why not? Lots of factors, obviously. That's a complex issue. But maybe this is a big one. Maybe you and I are not embodying the mercy of God in our everyday relationships. Maybe we're not embodying the mercy of God in concrete ways, bringing the grace and mercy of God to bear on concrete needs as a church within our community. Maybe we're not doing that. Maybe we think we are, but maybe we're not doing it in a way that our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members and this community says, Wow. That is a weird church. They believe weird things about Jesus, God, the Bible. But I am, I kind of would like to hang out with them a little bit more. I don't meet many people like that in my life. Gracious, compassionate, merciful. Um, I read lots of stuff about church growth and development and tips and tricks of pastors and it's always interesting to hear what people come up with. They say the number one front door of a church is your preaching. Meaning the number one reason why people will come to your church is if you have a strong preaching ministry. And they find that through all kinds of surveys, why did these Christians choose to move from this church to that church and why did this non-Christian choose to go from here to here? But I actually don't think that is true. Because in many of those situations what preceded that person from listening to that sermon or showing up and taking the risk to step into that, you know, sit down in that chair or to step into a small group was because they knew someone from that church who loved them in a very different way than the world and what they were used to in normal relationships. They had some person from that church in their life show mercy and graciousness and compassion and that destroyed their presumption of what a Christian was and they said, wow, this is a very merciful person. I want to know what's going on in their church. And then they show up and they say, oh yeah, maybe the teaching is helpful or whatever. But I think the great front door of churches is ministries of mercy. Just like in Jesus' time, nothing much has changed, right? Strong minis- teaching ministry uh, is okay, but it's not compellingly attractive for most people. They can go online and find all kinds of interesting teaching, stimulating stuff. What they're not going to find online and what they're probably not going to find in the flux and flow of most of their daily lives is an encounter with merciful, gracious, compassionate people. Encountering a person who's experienced and internalized and expresses the mercy of God, that is so rare, it is so precious, and it is so powerful. 
speaking on the importance of being a church that pours itself out through individual and corporate acts of mercy and compassion, one author said this, the ministries of mercy then are the best advertisement a church can have because it convinces a community that this church provides people with actions for their problems, not just talk, and it shows the community that this church is compassionate. The date's a little arbitrary, but by 2020, I would like to have a problem. And the problem I would like to have is we are having to continually rethink the logistics of how we do church because we have to figure out how we're going to accommodate multiple services, a church plant, greater discipleship structures for new Christians or Christians in their first five years of becoming a Christian or all of the above. And when I think about that problem and the joys that it would present, I keep coming back to the fact that I I don't think that's going to happen unless we allow God to grow us into being people of mercy and grace and compassion. I'm not sure you can have that kind of impact in the lives of people if we haven't been shaped by the mercy of God. We need to grow, all of us, and I'm saying this very much for myself. I'm preaching to myself this morning as someone who's never even preached on mercy before. We have to grow in our capacity to show mercy and compassion to those within our community. So how do we do it? Well, to a group of religious leaders, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting from Hosea Hosea 6.6. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. Jesus says to those who got it, these are religious teachers. They've memorized Hosea 6.6. They know it. They could teach on it. He says, you have to go and learn. Isn't that interesting? Mercy is something you can only learn as you go out and try and do it, as you extend it. That's when you learn about it. It's not an idea that you're like, I get it, I understand it. No, you have to go and learn. Go and learn. We have to practice mercy. It's not an idea to be grasped, it's a lifestyle to be lived. But as we do, just as I want to front end the warning, because this is, even in my uh, very small steps into taking risks in this area in my own life, I've discovered something about mercy. And that is, this is the third point. That's the cost of mercy. The cost of mercy. Mercy isn't cheap. Mercy, in almost every circumstance, it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. If you've ever been in a situation where you've had to repeatedly, consistently extend compassion, you will know it is emotionally exhausting. It can be psychologically exhausting. It can be spiritually exhausting. There are situations where extending mercy means it is financially exhausting. I'm sure that throughout all these encounters, right? I mean, Mark kind of lumps them all together. Towns, villages, countrysides, they were going all over. But we have to understand and put ourselves in the, in the, in the, in the feet of the disciples, these, these apostles who are going around with Jesus. This is exhausting work. Even though it's joyous, even though you're seeing miracles happen, the toll of that kind of output, certainly for Jesus and for the disciples, is, is immense. Mercy costs something. To extend mercy will cost us personal time. It will cost us discretionary income. It's going to cost you your social reputation. It's going to cost you psychological energy. All of those are going to take a hit 
if and when you decide to say, I want to go and learn to do mercy. I want to go and learn what this means. We're going to learn that mercy is costly. And I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why I think after kind of the honeymoon period of becoming a Christian wears off a little bit, you begin to pull back. I, I don't often have to try and convince new Christians to be merciful, to extend the mercy and grace of God into their relationships. They're kind of doing it haphazardly and kind of like a shotgun approach to loving and being merciful and compassionate to people. It's when we get more experienced and kind of maybe the dust settles in our faith and we begin to lose a bit of our zeal and then we start realizing, wow, is this sustainable to live like this? Like this is really, this is costly. So we start to pull back and be responsible and careful and and then you fast forward 10 or 20 years and uh, you've almost forgotten what it looks like outside of maybe cursory extensions of mercy and small group or church stuff. But you, you've forgotten what it looks like to go into your day, into your workplace, into your school, into your sports teams with that heart that says, I want to look for ways to extend mercy and compassion and to show that in concrete ways. And for those of you who find yourself in that situation like I do, I want to just challenge you this week to go and learn. And ju- just, just focus on one thing. I just pray and say, God, in one area of my life, maybe it's in my marriage, maybe it's with my kids, maybe it's with a coworker, maybe it's with a, an estranged family member. But in this one area, can you spur my imagination? Can you, can you do something in my heart, put something on my heart to do that extends mercy to this person? Writing a letter, saying sorry, whatever it is, but just do one thing. Extend mercy and compassion towards your spouse, but do so knowing that might come at great cost to your pride. Extend mercy and compassion to someone who's hurting this week, but do so knowing that might come at great cost to your time. Extend mercy and compassion to someone who's in great need this week, but know that it might come at great cost to your finances. It might mean your lifestyle is impacted so that they can experience grace and mercy and compassion. And as you do that, even if you just intentionally, deliberately focused on just, just one thing and just executing that this week and saying, God, I wanna, would you teach me through this one channel of mercy? And then, of course, God, feel free to blow that up into all the areas of my life. But I'm just going to start here you're going to realize, and doing that is going to help you understand the catalyst of mercy. And that's the last point, the catalyst of mercy. See, all acts of mercy are, uh, mercy are costly. And if you were to really dig into this, there might be one or two people here who are like, oh yeah, this is totally right. I need to do this. I'm going to become way more merciful. I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to really put my nose to the grindstone and just be merciful. I'm not going to do one thing. I'm going to do four things this week. You're like a spiritual A-type. And, and you're an achiever and you're going to do it, it will not be long before you begin to experience what psychologists call compassion fatigue. It won't be long. And it will just begin to wane and your zeal will drop. You'll find yourself growing hardened and even indifferent to the needs of those around you because the needs are constant. Is there a renewable resource of motivation that if you were drinking from it could actually offset that compassion fatigue? 
that could offset the costly burden of whatever time, energy, or money you're, you're losing in order to be merciful and, and extend mercy to other people. And I actually believe Christianity has the only renewable resource in this area. I don't think any other worldview, any other religion has anything that even competes with what I believe is the only renewable resource that can sustain a lifestyle of mercy, and that is the gospel. The gospel, the central message of Christianity, the good news that God made himself poor, came and lived among us, showed us, poured out his grace and mercy on us, ultimately, in the greatest act of mercy, died on the cross, was resurrected to save us from both the power of sin and the penalty of sin, to lead us into a new kind of life, to redeem and restore us. Why? Because we were so amazing. <laughs> did, we, did he look down from on high and say, wow, look at those guys. They, they got to level 9 out of 10, and I'm going to give them the top up. That's awesome. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, if you think think and pray through and reflect on and read books on the gospel. <clears throat> what you realize is whatever costs you're incurring to extend mercy to someone else, they're not even one one millionth in comparison to the costs that God had to bear in order to extend mercy to you. So you're, if it does end up costing you emotionally, relationally, spiritually, financially, that moment of cost, a moment of, ah, seriously, I'm not going to be able to do this because I gave this much money over here or whatever, that cost, that's a dim hint of what God entered into. Right? Philippians 2, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, eternally coexisting, he didn't equate equality with God is something to be held onto, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself, even to death on a cross. The renewable resource for a life characterized by mercy is the gospel. We have to be going back into the gospel again and again and reflecting on the fact that when we're doing this to other people, and when we're tempted to say, this is enough, I, I, I need to just walk away from this, or we find our hearts getting hard, we need to pause, look back at the gospel, incarnation, cross, New, uh, new creation, resurrection, say, thank God, God doesn't have compassion fatigue. And not just in that moment, but in our lives all the time. We're recipients of tremendous grace and mercy all the time. Thank God that he does not have compassion fatigue. We're called to be merciful, just as our Father is merciful. And there's a world and a community out there that is really hungry and eager to discover people who are characterized by that kind of transformational mercy. So let's challenge ourselves to show costly mercy in a deliberate way this week, and may our appreciation and understanding of God's mercy towards us in the gospel expand and deepen as we do. Let's pray. God, we want to be a merciful people, but many of us, including myself, we have to go and learn. We've been thinking about it, praying about it, reflecting about it more than we've actually been doing it. Would you teach us to be merciful, God? And would you ground us in your mercy? Show us in new ways the breadth and depth of your mercy so that this is not just a, uh, a make-work project for the week, 
this becomes a lifestyle in response to the gospel of grace. Help us, Jesus. Lead us by your spirit and by your word. Amen.